0: I call Pittsburgh the beautiful beast. (laughs) Tough, strong, great past, challenging future. Pastor Buck, I want to say to you that even as you mentioned Matthew 24 and some of the things we taught with the men, uh, you are perfectly suited for the correct and proper message of eschatology of victory. You are not suited for an eschatology of defeat. And what we've been exposed to for years is an eschatology of defeat. We're going to hang on. A few of us are going to get out of here. The rest is going to be all blown to bits. And the world is going to be no more. That's prophecy. That's wrong. Let me give you a couple of words just before I go into our subject today that I think would be interesting for you to study because it has to do with our concept about how we believe things. Words are interesting. Words are how we get where we're going. Words are how we explain what's going on. In the scripture, the the scripture talks to us about that we are challenged to renew our mind by the renewing of your mind. You've been taught that, I'm sure. Uh, The scripture is the only place, and God is the only one, that that can create through what is called in the Greek metanoia, uh metanoia is uh the first meta and i'll explain it in just a moment it'll make sense to you but metanoia is best described in the miraculous act of what happens with a caterpillar becoming a butterfly Uh, a, a butterfly is not a caterpillar that grew wings a butterfly is a caterpillar that went into a cocoon and melted down and was rebirthed as a butterfly It's called metanoia. Now, metanoia means that God will renew all things. And that's what we're called as the kingdom of God to operate in is the spirit of metanoia. Now, I'm not going to try to step on any toes, but I'm going to tell you that many in the body of Christ are not operating because of their bad eschatology. They're not operating. Eschatology means the study of last things, how you think it's all going to end. They're not operating in the spirit of metanoia. They're operating in the spirit of paranoia. Watch this now, it's the same, it's the same root. Metanoia or paranoia. Metanoia means all things will be made new. Paranoia means that there will be everything that is is out to get me. Everything that is is going to turn out bad. Metanoia says everything is going to be re- renewed. The greatest declaration that God will ever make is listed in the book of Revelation. Do you understand how much power it's going to be uh, that's going to be released when the Bible says that God is going to declare, Behold, I make all things new? Wow. wow. Think about that. There's another couple of words you ought to study. I am, my eschatology creates in me a faith. This is why I'm telling you Pastor Buck and Amy are perfectly fitted for 21st century proper ministry of eschatology of victory. Because there's two other words that we need to look at. Those words are, I have an eschatology and a belief of, that God is going to create and is creating a panacea. Panacea means an environment where all things are fixed, restored, and renewed. A philosophy of panacea. Watch this now. Same root word from the Greek, pandemonium. Pandemonium, pan, is the same prefix of both words. Panacea means all things made new. Pandemonium means all demons released against God's plan. Pandemonium. Demonium is the word for demons. All demons. So we're looking for an environment of pandemonium or panacea. All demons are not going to be given the right to destroy what God has planned to renew. Not in your life or not in the whole world. Now, with this said, I'm going to go into something today, even as our friends in Israel, and I pray for them. I love them. I know them, many of them personally. I looked at pictures last night on my phone of IDF officers who are in this fight right now that I stood with in pictures that I know. Uh, Danny Denon, who is the spokesman that you'll see mostly on the news that's the Israeli defense minister's spokesperson, is a friend of mine. I have pictures on my phone with him and in meetings. And I also have pictures on my phone of Palestinian pastors and churches that I've spoken in in Gaza. You know, this is how ancient this fight is. Uh, when Saul, the first king of Israel, was slain and his son Jonathan, the lament of David was, publish it not in Ashdod and Ashkelon. Ashdod and Ashkelon were Palestinian cities that were then called the Philistines. You know where the word Palestine comes from? It's actually an insult that was spoken by the Roman Caesar, who on purpose mispronounced the land of Philistia and called it Palestine, not Philistine. And Jews were never Philistines. The Philistines were the enemies of the Jews throughout the Old Testament. That uh, They fought them every few chapters of the Bible. The Philistines were attacking the Jews. And the Philistines lived in what is now the Gaza Strip. This is an ancient thing. I saw on the news last night an attack against Ashdod and Ashkelon. Same cities that they were fighting in 4,000 years ago. So pray for Israel. Pastor Buck was right on. Pray for Israel and pray for Hamas to be destroyed and pray for Palestinians who are good people. Listen, Hamas is a government that strong-armed their way into power over the Palestinians and they keep them starving and barefoot and living on dirt floor houses and Hamas steals all the money and makes rockets to destroy. They are a demonized organization and they need to be driven into the sea. And this is going to be some of the toughest fighting ever because they're going to have to go house to house because Hamas has no conscience about uh, civilians and they will hide in every house behind women and children. And it's going to be tough, tough to route them out for the IDF to clean that up. Pray, pray for all involved. But look, it's not wrong for us to call good good and evil evil. That's right. That's right. Amen. And evil in its form, every form needs to be rooted out. Yes. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Now, with that said... This is going to seem like the most ironic subject that I could ever preach. But first of all, I want to establish that this that's going on is not new. This has been happening long before you and I ever got here. And God has a plan. But I want to talk to you today about uh, uh, the subject of happiness. And it's from a book that is the most important book that I've ever written. And it comes out in about two months. It's at the printer now, and it's called real happy. Jesus' surprising secrets to genuine joy. Pastors Buck and Amy were with us, I believe, on the Mount of Beatitudes in northern Galilee when I taught on the Beatitudes and God visited us in a special way that day. And I'll never forget, I was weeping and God said to me, you have to write this in a book. That's when the call to do this, that was six years ago. I've never had more challenge. I I had no idea what all we were going to go through before this book on happiness. And you know what the first hurdle I had to clear was? Happiness is too trivial for God to care about my personal happiness. I know he wants me righteous. I know he wants me repentant. I know he wants me holy, but I don't know that he wants me happy. In the Old Testament, every encounter with God that we know about, I could just name a few, with Abram, with Moses, with Joshua, with Ezekiel, every one of these men of God and women, encounters with God were terrorizing. All of them it mentions that they shook and they trembled. When the children of Israel made a golden calf and worshipped it, Moses forced them to grind it to powder, pour it in the water, and drink it. And the Bible says that as a punishment that God brought on them that day, 3,000 Israelis died in the wilderness that day. That's the God they were dealing with. Fearsome. Then Jesus came and everything changes with Jesus. Jesus becomes the expression of God that he really wanted to give to us because his, I, I, I dare say this word, but his frustration with us throughout the Old Testament is like, look, God has never been a man. The Bible says God is not a man that he should lie. God didn't understand our issues. This is the entire Old Testament. Here's God, here's you all, and God is like, what is your problem? Yes. I give you this and you do that. I give you there and you go there. I point you there and you go there. What is the problem? God okay. hadn't been a man. Then he became a man. On the steps of the temple, the old man, Simeon, that had been a high priest, his, his number one prayer was, let me see Messiah before I die. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be dedicated, The Bible says that the old man took Jesus in his arms and he saw a smiling baby. And you know how babies, I love it when babies, you put out your index finger and their their whole little hand takes a hold of your finger. And when Jesus, as God in the flesh, took a hold of Simeon's finger and Simeon smiled as an old man and he said, now I can die because I have seen the face of God. See, this is when everything changes with Jesus. Now... You can now hold God. God is going to be nursed as a baby. God is going to be, hold the finger of his mom and daddy and learn how to walk. Wow. Jesus changed everything about the expression of God in the earth. Now, I want to make a bold statement here, but I want you to stay with me. Happiness is the lost gift of the church. I think that we've done a really good job teaching the world that they need to repent. I think we've done a really good job that we need to be holy and quit sinning. I think we've really done a good job that you need to be serious. And, uh, you know, the, the dead Jesus hanging on a cross in front of the church sends a pretty strong message. It's like the little boy that his neighbors wanted to take him to church. His parents didn't go to church. And they said, we're afraid for you to take him. He's going to act up. He's going to run everywhere. And they said, no, no, he'll be fine. So they took him to church. He sat there still as a judge the whole time, never moved. His parents said, how'd he do? They said, fine. He didn't act up at all. They said, Johnny, how come? How did you do that? You've acted so well, and you're always misbehaving. He said, man, when they took me in there and I saw what they did to that last guy, (laughs) We haven't done a good enough job of presenting the happiness that God wants us to have. In fact, the very evidence that I wrestle with it for years, is this too trivial to write? God doesn't want me happy. God wants me effective. He wants me to be a soul winner. He wants me to pray hours a day. He wants me to quit sin, and he wants me to dress right and do my hair right and not wear makeup. If I'm a lady, I don't wear much makeup as it is. But Jesus was full of joy. And this is also a Jesus that we don't present enough. I taught to the men there, is the Lord that you serve a dead man on a cross or a live Lord on a throne? Because the difference in your concept is the way you're going to live. And going and looking at a dead Jesus on a cross and kissing the feet of the plaster, whatever he's made of, until we wear it out, does not send you out to a life of victory. But when you understand, and listen, you say, my God, this is sacrilegious. No, wait just a minute. Let's let Jesus speak for himself. The Bible says that Jesus despised death on a cross, but is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living, making intercession for us. I want that Jesus. In fact, I don't even like the word crucifix. Crucifix from the Latin, crux means cross, and fix is the word we get fixation. We have fixed him to a cross. He died for our sins, they took him down. They couldn't keep him dead. He came out of a tomb. He was seen in Jerusalem 40 days. He ascended to the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He released the Holy Spirit. And he's making judgments now from heaven into the earth on your behalf and mine. And that's the picture I have of Jesus. I'm not going to leave him hanging on a cross. That's not where he is. And if that's where he is in your mind, get a new image of Jesus. When you when you get up in the morning, this is the image I have of Jesus. Stands up from his throne, like, oh my gosh, Corey's up today. What are we gonna do today, Corey? You're representing me as my ambassador in the earth. That's the image I got of Jesus. Full of joy. Where did this happen for Jesus? I think I know. When Jesus grew up and had the assignment that he did as savior of the world. And he knew that that was always, he always knew that that was awaiting him, but he had not started his ministry. And according to Jewish tradition of the rabbis, he waited to respect their uh, culture till he was 30 years old. At his 30th year, he went to the river to be baptized by John the Baptist, as you know. I believe the baptism of joy came at the baptism of Jesus. Now, We don't know a lot about his early or teenage life. We know that he was at the temple talking with the elders and the scribes at 12. We know a few things. But at his baptism, something powerful happened. At his baptism, when he came up out of the water, these specific things happened. The heavens were opened. And that's not just for that day or that occasion. The heavens were opened... And a voice spoke from heaven and said, this is my much-loved son, and I'm so happy with him. I'm so proud of him. Wait, Wait just a minute, Jesus. Sorry, but I'm coming from a bit of a religious works background. You're going to have to help me with this. What are you so excited about about this guy? He lived with his parents too long. He's 30 years old, had not had a real job. He's never worked a miracle. He's never told anybody he's the son of God. And as far as I know, he hasn't accomplished a blooming thing. What are you so proud of? Now that I understand it, I say, thank you, God, for showing me that and doing me that, helping me with that, understanding that, because that's the same kind of love he shows for us. When you hadn't done a thing good. When you didn't know to do good. When you were practicing evil because it's all you'd learned. He still opened the heavens over you and said, this is my daughter. This is my son. I'm unbelievably proud of them. What do you see, God, that we don't see? So when he spoke over his son, listen carefully to this. All he had was a word of blessing. That's all he had. All he had was a word of blessing. And went in the power of that and changed the world. What are you doing with your word of blessing? Because the whole happiness message is we have externalized instead of internalized what is really supposed to give us joy. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. But he had nothing but a word. So the heavens opened. Now, when the heavens open, remember this now, 4,000 years or so of man's history, we've we've been, uh, been terrorized by God. Hail and fire and foreign enemies and people dropping dead. Now, Jesus is baptized and the heavens open and the voice speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the people have to be like, you know, a kid that's been slapped around too much Every time somebody raises their hand, he's like, (laughs) and the crowd around there in the baptism is like, my God, this is God. What's coming next? Is it going to be hailstones or fire? And guess what came? A dove. A dove? Are you kidding me? This is the God of 4,000 years of fire and brimstone and he sends a dove? Yeah. Same kind of bird that Noah sent out from the ark and finally came back with a branch of peace. He sent a dove for a sign. He's released something into the earth that's never been released before. He sends a dove. A dove and a voice. This is a radical corrective in our concept of God. So Jesus said, I've got nothing but the voice. I heard the voice. Now watch this. Jesus went straight from his baptism... To his first sermon. And in Matthew chapter 5. He sits people down that are following him up a mountain. This is another thing that's changed. Gosh, this is so alive to me in my my mind. Moses went up mountains. Got tablets of stone and law. And came down and God killed half of them when they disobeyed. Nobody ever followed Moses up a mountain. (laughs) But when Jesus went up a mountain, everybody followed him. So he had them all set down. And this is, I want to put this together for you. This this is the first words and his first sermon after his blessing at his baptism. In Matthew chapter 5, he sets them down and teaches what we now know as the Beatitudes. I'm going to give you some snippets of the book by giving you some things about the first Beatitude... And I'm going to tell you that there are eight of them and actually nine because I've added one called the bonus beatitude because when John's disciples came at the end of that sermon, John had been imprisoned and John sent them to say, are you the one we seek or do we look for another? And Jesus said, tell John the blind see, the deaf hear. And before they were out of earshot, he said, by the way, because he just taught the beatitudes and he utters another one, by the way, Happy is he that's not offended with me. That's the ninth beatitude, that you're happy if you stay away from offense. So I'm going to give you some things on the, on the first one. Jesus sets them down on the mountain, and something really different is going to happen. He uses a word. There's a word in our language, uh, a slang word uh, that we use, cool. Uh, cool has been the most abiding word that I know of that means cool. Uh, through the years, and I've been around a long time, for you youngsters using cool, uh, we used cool in the 60s. Yeah. Didn't we, Wayne? That, that's cool. Now, other words have come and gone. I don't know how long dope is going to last, <laughs> but I know cool's been around for at least 50 years. In Jesus' day, there was a kind of pulp, pop culture words, too. Because of the influence of the Greeks, and you'll have to understand this, I'm moving quickly now, but stay right with me. You have to understand this, that the word Jesus is about to use has been retranslated in about the 15th century to a word that I don't care for. It doesn't lead you in a bad direction, but it's not a good translation. The translation that came forth then in the King James Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That, That sounds really good sounds really religious, and it totally changes the meaning of the first word. The word was not blessed are. Jesus actually used a pop culture word, which was a Greek word, makarios. Makarios was a cultural word that, like we would say cool, makarios was a Greek word that Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, all of them sought out. What is and how do we find Makarios? Because the Greek culture that had influenced then the Romans and the Greeks were influential in Israel, and that's why many of the Israelis spoke Greek. That's why the New Testament was originally written in Greek. They spoke that. They understood that. And Makarios is a Greek word that Jesus uses here. He doesn't use the word that we would normally translate blessing. He uses the word Makarios, which means I'm going to lead you to the happiness that all of the philosophers sought and never found. And they called it Makarios, and here's what they taught. There is a happiness that man cannot enjoy, only the gods. As you know, they were pantheistic. The Greeks had many gods. And they believed that only the gods could enjoy happiness. And that happiness was not attainable by man. So Makarios was something sought but never found, and it's not even our right. So Jesus looks out over this crowd of peasants and shopkeepers and mothers and children and early followers of Jesus, and they're sitting on the side of this mountain on Galilee, and Jesus utters this, Makarios, unbelievably happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's his first declaration And that's the first place we're going to start in the real happy message of the book to start to straighten out misinterpretation that leads down. Listen, bad doctrine always leads to bad outcomes. So when you read this, blessed are the poor in spirit, (laughs) then what happens is you have major denominations that are still with us today that make everyone in their ministry take a vow of poverty. Because the blessing of God comes through poverty. The poorer you are, the holier you are. Because God will make you happy if you're poor. Because Jesus said it, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let me translate for you quickly what that really means and see if it makes a difference in the direction we take. Not blessed are the poor in spirit, but happy will those of us be who will empty out what we have put in the God space until our spirit is empty enough for God to put his stuff in us. Yes. Then you receive the kingdom of heaven. That's what it really means. It has nothing to do with monetary value or financial poverty. Nothing to do with that. It has to do with an emptying out. Literally, Poor in spirit translates an emptying out. Blessed means, so here's how we translate it. Happy are those who will empty out. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What am I supposed to empty out? Well, see, God was not with us in the same way in the Old Testament. Uh, The great uh, character Joseph, who's one of my favorites, who went into Egypt as a prisoner and became a leader, but there's only two times in Joseph's whole experience that the Bible says that God was with him. And the first one was in the pit when his brothers sold him, and the second one was when he was in the prison waiting for Pharaoh to get his word and release him, that he could interpret his dream. There's only two times it's listed that God was with him. But God can be now in us. Not with us just in our toughest times, but in us. And there is makarios in that. There is unbelievable joy. But here's what we have to do. If happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, let's call this the emptying out beatitude. So we've misunderstood it to be poor equals poverty, and we take a vow of poverty to be holy. And the more poorly, the more holy but it actually means to empty it out. Now watch this. Our nature as humans is to externalize the things in our quest for happiness that we search for and then internalize it by bringing it into our spiritual space. In other words, we get into the I will be happy when. I'll be happy when I get that Mercedes. Then the Mercedes that we get we internalize expecting to put a Mercedes in the God space in our spirit. And listen what I've learned in six years of studying for this book. Happiness is an inside job. There is no such thing as long-term happiness with external things. And in fact, what Jesus is teaching us in the blessed ours, the Beatitudes, is that you can be happy in spite of the most difficult circumstance you've ever gone through. You know who the happiest pastors in my ministry of 50 years that I've ever been with are? I wrote about them in the book. And I actually talked to one of them last week because they got a total final victory, Pastor Buck. A few years ago, I went to Vietnam. I met with the head of an apostle of churches in the underground And with eight leaders in the room, I heard their stories collectively, I asked to hear each of their stories, and I added up collectively 45 years they had spent in Vietnamese prisons for preaching. And they were the happiest men that I'd ever been among. Leading churches that were governmentally illegal, going to prison for preaching the gospel, laughing and poking each other. One of them poked his friend and said, this guy came to my village, preached John 3:16, had it written on a piece of paper, didn't even have a Bible. I accepted Jesus. He gave me the piece of paper and said, now tomorrow you start preaching this. And I only preached three days. I got put in prison for nine months. <laughs> this guy, that's what this guy did to me. And they just hug and laugh. Well, what did Jesus say? Makarios, happy are you when you're persecuted for righteousness. How is that possible? Because our happiness doesn't come from things. And the miracle that happened was that these guys, and I'll finish it quickly about Vietnam. I just learned this last week, two weeks ago, and it's beautiful. For all those years, they've been in prison, they've been beaten, they've suffered, and about three weeks ago, Pastor Daniel, that's his English name, that's the apostle over at text me, and he said, Pastor Mike, I hate to do this last uh, minute, but I need your help. Uh, We need to raise some money, and here's why. The communist government has come to us and said, we want you to host a banquet and invite all the pastors in Vietnam, north to south, and we're going to have all the communist leaders there. And at this banquet, we're going to issue you and all of your church leaders an official recognition certificate and openly and freely practice your Christianity and your churches in Vietnam. Their happiness won the day. You know how they won? Because the communist leaders' kids are all on drugs. And they go to prison for heroin. And in prison, they begin to get saved with these pastors in there with them and then go home and take their newfound salvation to their communist leader dads and moms, and they have turned a country. But, but happiness existed in the midst of what we would think was terrible persecution. But yet we can sit here in the middle of the most prosperous nation in the world, and we just keep buying things and, and getting things and stuffing things in, and if I can get that, I'll be happy and if I can get a new wife, I'll be happy. This one's gotten a little old and wrinkly on me. One of my friends with a real sharp tongued little wife, he said to her, he said to me one day with a wink, he said, She's gotten 40, Mike. I think I'm thinking about trading her in for 220s. <clears throat> and he was in the electrical business. His wife, without missing a beat, said, You ain't wired for 220. So we, we externalize what should be external. We internalize it and bring it into our soul. So when we fill our internal or our spirit with external things, there is no room for the kingdom. So I want to suggest that you think with me now, and we're going to close this in about five minutes. I want, you to, I want to suggest in a very real way that you make this message today practical. Number one, can I help you get over the religious hang-up that God actually doesn't want you happy? Because the concept I had as a boy, I'm sorry, but it's just what I picked up. I was just a kid. I went to church every time the doors were open. My dad became a pastor. They weren't saved as young adults. I was two years old when they got saved. Then when they started a church, I figured it out. I was, when I was like eight years old, I had it figured out, you know, that somehow God was mad at all of us. And the more miserable you were, the more pleased he was with you. And the more you lost, gave up and had reversals in your life, the more thrilled he was about it. My grandma, my mom and a lady in the church, none of the three in our little pioneer church in Northern Arizona could sing a lick, but they wanted to contribute and they had a trio. They would sing a trio And I still remember the song. They would sing. The song was called, Take Everything But My Lord. The song went something like this. Take my possessions, my treasures, my ambitions. Take the sunshine, the flowers, the birds. Take everything but my Lord. I was eight years old. I'm sitting somewhere halfway back in the church. I'm suicidal. (laughs) Because that was the concept of God. We, we didn't exude happiness. We were trying to do all the standards, and the wives were growing hair they could sit on, but nobody was happy. They couldn't wear any makeup, and like the old farmer told me once, any old barn looks better with some red paint on it, and that is an awful thing to say. But, you know, it seemed like somehow there was a premium on ugliness. and if And if you were born pretty, God help you, because... Listen, Wayne knows I'm telling the truth. If you were a girl born pretty, God help you because you were worldly. You weren't ugly enough to be holy. (coughs) And we missed presenting happiness. I'm going to share something with you. This book is about to come out. And this is not a sales pitch. I want you to hear the spirit of this. Because I can't even tell you what we have gone through in the journey of the last six years for this book to get out. And the reason it's got to get out is because the world has never needed more desperately the message of what Jesus really wants for them. This book is going to cross lines. We're going for it. I told Pastor Buck, we hired and are privileged to get one of the top publicity firms on Madison Avenue in New York City on the 11th floor has taken this book. They've read it. They're a bunch of publishing gurus that are Jews. They love the book. They love the concept of it. They're branding it. They're publishing it for us, and it's going to go. I'm not interested in just selling a few books to my warm market. I want this book to break out into a place where people are lost. People are lost. People are lost. My associate in this book, Dr. Jeff Garner from San Francisco, is a brilliant man with a double doctorate in early church history, and he's been a great researcher and a great friend for me. And I added him, I added his name to this book because he helped me so much. And just two weeks ago, because we're in beta testing now, we're doing a thing that we call coaching, and we use the book for coaching. I filmed some of the guys yesterday asking them questions about happiness in their life. Pastor Jeff said I had two young men that I had in my youth group 20 or 30 years ago who have gone astray for years. The church abuse and the lack of understanding of this message drove them to the streets. Drugs, lost. And he said, i have suicidal. And I, I got a hold of them and I said, you've got to come for counseling. And he said, I use this book. Our book. Wow. And he said the young man I was counseling stood up, started crying profusely and said, I've got to leave. He went out in the lobby. He came back in about 30 minutes trying to dry it up. And I said, Jeff said, I asked him, what happened to you? And he said, I'll tell you what happened to me. It's not
1: negative. It's positive. But he said, what I suddenly see is that I've spent all of my life trying to make God happy with me and I didn't know that God was trying to make me happy with him that he's enough that he wants me happy
0: and the tragedy is that his friend didn't make it to his counseling appointment and on the day this young man got his breakthrough understanding how much God loved him his friend jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge
1: two weeks ago Because we didn't get to him with the message that God wants you happy. We're not in a quest to make an angry God happy. God is in a quest to make us his highest creation happy. He wants you happy. A relationship with Jesus is not about being miserable. And these are happy tears because I've been set free. This book has changed my life.
0: I want to pray with you as you prepare to stand, but I want to ask you to, this week, as trivial as this sounds, I want to ask you to start practically emptying out your life. I don't care if it's go home and clean out your closet, give half your clothes to charity. I've got 12 or something and some guy on the street has none. I'm going to give him one. I, clean out the closet. You'll feel good. Clean out the garage, you guys. Give stuff away. Pair down. Thank you. And then get to the serious stuff. And while you're feeling good about cleaning up your life physically of external stuff, start looking in your spirit. What have you put in there trying to make you happy that doesn't fit in that space. Because Jesus said, mekarios,
1: filled with joy, are those who will empty out a space for me.
0: In a practical way, just before we pray, we have the greatest opportunity in history to fix this. We messed it up and we can fix it. We're gonna be known as the happy people. That church filled with joy. That church where they stand for one another. That church where they'll pull you out of a hole. That church that knows how to circle the wagons. That church that comes out of there and it's nine in the morning on Sunday and you think they're drunk because they're jostling each other and laughing and having so much fun. Isn't that where this all started? These men are drunk. Peter said, they are drunk, but not on what you think. It's only nine in the morning, but we just got hit by a Holy Ghost jolt that let us know how happy God is with us, how much he loves us, and we're happy. We're happy. Most churches in America need to drain the pickle juice out of their baptistry and put in fresh water. Because being baptized and service Jesus, serving Jesus doesn't make you sour. <laughs> Empty stuff.